I was just 1969. I was only eight years old. But the way I grew up, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Sandlot. Have you seen that movie? Bunch, bunch of kids who played baseball all the time. That's how I grew up. We played all the time. We had our uh, ball glove was always on the handlebars of my bike. If, it wasn't, if I wasn't using it, it was on the handlebars. The bat was stuck. You know, I had a normal bike seat back then, banana seat with a sissy bar. It was stuck back there. It was locked in. I had uh, your, your baseball. You couldn't really use a league because it didn't give enough, but you had to like, use like a rubber-coated league. It was rammed up in either the frame or in the spokes of your bike, and you just rode around. So whenever, we all did this. So wherever we needed to stop and play ball, we had it. We could play. Well, there was a, a time, I don't know, I can't remember if, if someone fouled the, the ball off. It went on the roof of our school, I think is what happened. And so I went home and I got all the money out of my, my bank, which wasn't much. It was a dollar, I think. And I, I headed for Bargain Town. Now, it was downtown Chicago, and Bargain Town was like four blocks away. It was actually the original Toys R Us. So it was kind of a cool store for a little kid. I, I walked there on my own across major thoroughfares. I don't know why my parents let me do this. A different day, probably, 1969. I don't know. But I go into Bargain Town. I get a really nice rubber-coated league. It was just perfect. I'm coming out of Bargain Town, paid for it, of course. Coming out of, yes, my friends didn't always do that, but I did. I paid for it first, and I'm coming out, and I'm just checking out the ball. It's looking great, and I'm heading towards the intersection that I've got to cross the main road. And I I notice that there's uh, about four or five boys, older boys. I'm eight years old. These guys were like junior high, and they were all there kind of looking at me, whispering among themselves. I thought, this does not look very good. I was kind of discerning. So I decided I'm going to be nonchalant and just kind of turn and start going the other way. So when I started doing that, these guys divided up and they just started running. I thought, oh, this is no good. So I'm running through the parking lot. These guys are closing in on me. I'm going for the part where they had all the swing sets and I'm jumping through the swing sets, you know, like MacGyver or something. But my foot gets caught on a slide. I'm down. The next thing I know, I'm lifted up, and there, this gang of guys have surrounded me. You know, I feel like a baby antelope, and there's the pride of lions and the Serengeti, and I'm going, oh, man, this is not that good. Well, the leader comes up, and he grabs the ball out of my hand. Thank you very much. And then the other kids just pummeled me. I mean, I got popped in the stomach. I was hit in the face. I was knocked down. They were kicking on me, and then they ran. I'm eight years old, and I've been mugged. And I'm going, I can't believe this. I've been mugged. I'm an eight, I'm a kid, and I've been mugged. And I wasn't upset about, you know, hurt a little bit and sore. I didn't even think about that. The fact that they took my ball was really ticking me off because this was all afternoon baseball. Not only that, this was like the only one we had between all of us. And so it, who knows when we would get another baseball. And so this kind of ruined the future here. And so it was, well, I got up and went home a little bit more uh, wiser that day. Never got my ball back. Never called the police. We didn't, nothing like that happened. But uh, I learned a lesson. And the lesson that I learned is when I walk out of Bargain Town with my rubber-coated league, I better be looking close. And if I get chased, I better not trip over the slide in the swing sets. That's what I learned. That's probably not real applicable to you is my, my guess. You know, uh, different time, maybe different era. Uh, not a lot of application. The goofy thing is this. Jesus told a story one time about a mugging. And in Jesus' story, 2,000 years ago, other side of the world, alien culture. But if we can understand the lesson that that story tells us, I mean, it can really 
change our life. I mean, Jesus told a lot of stories, every single one of them, and this is the amazing thing about them, every single one of them has a principle that if you can grasp and walk towards, it really will change your life. So this morning we want to look at the parable of the mugging. Maybe you haven't ever heard of it called the parable of the mugging before, but it's found in Luke chapter 10. If you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, the parable of the mugging. Now you might know of it as the parable of the Good Samaritan, but I prefer it as the mugging. Um, let me give you a little background because it's important that we understand where this text is falling here. The gospel writers did not just kind of go through Jesus' life and write down, oh, y'all write down this, write down this, write down this, got it, got it, got it, got it. They were very selective for what they put in. And there was a reason why they put in what they did and left out other things. You know, John said that if everything was written down that Jesus did, all the books and all the libraries of the world wouldn't be able to contain it. These guys were, were selective. And so Luke as well, the first nine chapters of Luke, generally speaking, big idea is trying to ascertain the identity of Jesus. Who was Jesus? Luke chapters 1 through 9, who was Jesus? And then Luke chapters 10 through 18, the big idea is, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Jesus is securing his identity, who he is, it's imperative, you can't follow him unless you know who he is. But then after you know who he is, well, how, what does it look like to follow him? Starting in chapter 10, he's going to tell us. Now, we're starting in verse 25, but you need to know the first 24 verses of chapter 10. Because what Jesus does there is really significant. Remember, he's just starting to tell us what it looks like to follow him. So he brings 72 people together. Now, we've heard of the 12, the apostles, and we've got big crowds that always follow Jesus. Sometimes those guys, who knows where their spirituality is at. But then you have these 72 that he appointed. These guys, their faith is solid. They're good people. And he sends them out, two by two, to go, one thing they're supposed to do, share verbally the gospel. They're supposed to preach what Jesus preached. So they're supposed to walk into all these towns and all these people and say, you guys, the kingdom of God is coming. It's really soon. The Messiah is here. His name is Jesus. Straighten up your act. Get it together. Be looking. It's coming soon. That's the message you're supposed to be proclaiming. And Jesus is saying, if you're a follower of mine, one of the first things you've got to know is we are to lead others to him. We're, we're to proclaim the message. But then it's real important that this very next section follows right on its heels. And what Jesus is saying in this parable of the Good Samaritan is, is really, here's the, here's the bottom line with it. He's saying, um, if you're going to love people, my followers, then you're going to care about their souls, 72 going out and sharing the gospel. And if you love people, you're also going to care about their, their body, their physical situation, their circumstances they're in. Now, why that's important is because if you grew up with, uh, maybe grew up in the church, I did, conservative church, good church, very grateful for it, but the conservative churches, we really focused on that chapter 10 verses 1 through 24, the evangelism part. You know, we're going to go and we're going to share the gospel and we've got EE training and we've got special evangelism crusades going on and we're bringing in a special speaker crusade, evangelistic speaker, and we're really going to get the four laws going and we're going to learn how to share our faith because that's what it means to be a good believer and that's what we're supposed to do conservative churches the more main lines more we might say more liberal churches they go to the second section 
They say, ah, not so much that, but what he's really called us to do, loving people, is to care about their physicality and their bodies and their physical situation. And so the, the main lines don't put a whole lot of emphasis on those, that first part, but on the second part, they got the, the food stuff going and the, the wells thing and the protection. I was in a mainline church on staff one time, don't ask me how I got there, long story. But um, 80% of their missions budget, I'm serious, and we ended up, some of us struggling with this in the, in the, when we were there, but 80% of the missions budget was given all to this social gospel. I mean, all, we had missionaries overseas who did not ever share their, their faith. They'd be too offensive. But what they did is one guy I know went into the jungles to track a special endangered species bird, and he took notes and, and get, would give the notes to the uh, colleges in town. That's what he did. And that's what they considered was mission work because this was God's creation and we should love God's creation and, and yada, 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 yada. What Jesus is saying to us is, is, with this chapter, is to follow me. You have to embrace this, share your faith, but you also have to embrace this caring for their body. Care for their soul, care for their body. They go hand in hand. You can, it's a tension, but you've got to hang on to them both. You've got to hang on to them both. And so that's what he's trying to, to get across here. In chapter t- 10, verse 25, we start. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus' teacher. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Just a couple things give us understanding into the parable he's going to tell in a second. This expert in the law, just so you know, that usually the priests were experts in the law. This is not expert in Roman law. This is not where they're going to be trying somebody like that. It's, it's Mosaic law. It's the Old Testament. There's ten commandments. We know those. There's about 670 different commandments. And what the priests did with the experts in the law is they knew them all and they knew how they related to your life. They, they deciphered. They, they commentaried on, on all of them. They, they had it figured. So this, when you were serving in the temple, you were a priest, but when you were out of the temple, often you were considered an expert in the law. And so this guy, most probably is a priest, keep that in mind, it's real important, it's going to come back. And he stands up with a question for Jesus, but his motivation is real clear here. It's not necessarily because he really respects Jesus' knowledge and he wants an answer. It's because he wants to test Jesus. He wants to trap Jesus. He wants to trick Jesus. That's his, that's his goal. That's what he's looking to do. So he asks a question. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus, can smell this a mile away, but he, he entertains this guy's question. He says, well, what's written in the law? You're the expert in the law. Come on, you're supposed to be the professional law guy. You understand the law. Tell, you tell me, what, what, how do you interpret it? What do you think? So the guy says, well, quotes, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus answered, you've answered correctly. What this guy does is he quotes from Deuteronomy 6, which says, Hear, O Israel, Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your might. And then he quotes from, Deut- from uh, Leviticus 19, where it says that we're to love our neighbor as ourself. And... and uh, what, what he's doing with this, this is part of, of the Jewish liturgy. Every good Jewish person, before they left home in the morning, actually multiple times in the day, they would quote portions of scripture. This is one that they would quote. 
Every morning, before the, the, the priests, before the Levites would leave their home, they would quote, Hear, O Israel, Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with heart, soul, strength, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Lord, help me today to love my neighbor as myself. Every day they would quote this. Actually, multiple times a day. He's, 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 he's. Now, Jesus elsewhere says that all the law in the Old Testament falls under these two commands, to love God and love people. And so Jesus hears this guy's answer, and he says, If you do those two perfectly, you got it. Go for it. Well, actually, Jesus, what he's saying to this guy is, wait, you knew the answer? How come you asked me? I thought, 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 thought you didn't know the answer. What, what are you doing asking me? Actually, it's kind of offensive to this guy. The guy feels maybe a little awkward. I just asked a stupid question. You probably have never just asked a stupid question before. Uh, one time in um, uh, civics class, seventh grade, I raised my hand. I heard something. They were talking. I said, excuse me, what, what is a prostitute? What, what is that again? I, uh, Talk about a stupid... I felt really, really, really bad. We were at one time at a, a camp out with the... the uh, it was our annual um, canoe trip. And the kids had gone to bed. The leaders were, were... Mostly all leaders were up around the campfire just talking. And really got profound. Really got deep. I mean, people were opening their hearts. Just really, really deep stuff. And Christy, one of the newer uh, leaders, was there. And she was been quiet the whole time. But, you know, the level was just like at a 10. But, but Christy goes, uh, she's all kind of quiet. We're all kind of looking and pondering and thinking about the deep things of life. Christy goes, have you ever thought what it would be like to be a buzzard? And she was serious. We're like, no, Christy, we've never, never, never thought that's a good one. That's, that's a, but we've never, anyway, she felt very, very embarrassed, and as she should have, it was a stupid question. And we made sure that she knew that. I still today, I'll see her 30 something years later. Christy, have you ever thought it would be like to be a buzzard? Uh, the buzzard woman, we called her. Anyway, I'm thinking that this guy felt bad. And the reason why I think that is because, verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked another question, to justify himself. It, it means he, he was feeling upset that maybe he did ask a stupid question, that people think he, he's, he's stupid, and so now he's going to make sure that they don't, that they understand that he's got it together, that he's, he's going to ask an intelligent one. And so he's trying to get himself out there. We often do that, don't we, when we ask questions, when we, we want to make sure that people don't think we're uh, as foolish as we are. So he's asked a different question. He says, and who is my neighbor? The most important question, Jesus, isn't the eternal life question. It's really the neighbor thing. Who is my neighbor? Now, we look at that and we go, oh, that's a dopey question. But actually, that wasn't so much a dopey question. Because in, in Judaism, this idea of who my neighbor is was actually a somewhat controversial issue. Uh, keep in mind, the word neighbor is not like a Mr. Rogers neighbor. The word neighbor was actually a theological term. And the experts in the law had to try to define this. And so they're in Leviticus 19. And he says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, just look at that verse. Don't look at the one below it. Just look at that verse. Who is your neighbor? Who's your neighbor? You might look at that and go, Love your people. People, Jewish. Oh, I bet it's the Jewish people. But I think it's probably the Jewish people best. But if you go down into uh, chapter 19 a little bit further, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as native-born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. 
Is that verse saying that Gentiles are? Well, if it does say that, then what it means is Gentiles who are proselytes. You know what I mean? They have, they have become Jews. They can't get Jewish blood, but they've become Jewish in their faith. So Jewish people who love the law and Gentiles who, who are in their faith of Jewish, those are our neighbors. Now, that was really the only controversy. Is it just Jewish people or does it include Gentile people who are following the law as well? Anyone outside there certainly was not a neighbor. It wasn't even a possibility. Let me read you some of the things that, that uh, at this time, several rabbis would write commentary on the, the law, on the Old Testament law. One of the rabbis said this. He's, he's writing on Exodus chapter 21, verse 35. I'm sure you got it memorized, but let me just remind you. 2135 says something like this. Here's paraphrase. If your ox gores a neighbor's ox, and then it goes through all this restitution. So this is what this guy says about that verse. He says, when one man's ox hurts another, the ox of his neighbor, this, of course, excludes the ox of a Samaritan, of a foreigner, or a resident alien. We know where this guy was coming from. The neighbor does not include non-Jewish people. Another rabbi, writing on Leviticus 20, which says that, you know, you're not supposed to commit adultery with your neighbor's wife. This is what he says. He says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, that excludes the wife of a non-Israelite. So I suppose you can have adultery with the wife of a non-Israelite, just don't have a, with the wife of an Israelite, uh, because that is not your neighbor. Ra- another rabbi writing on the phrase of, or this whole idea of who should you hate, who should you love, this is what he says. He says, love all of these, the elite and the peasant Jewish person alike, but hate the sectarians, the apostates, the informers. Indeed, if he acts as thy people do, thou shalt love him, but if not... Thou shalt not love him. Um, and he's going off, he's going to actually quote, this rabbi will quote Psalm with David, where he says, I hate those who hate thee, O Lord. He says it's appropriate for us to hate those who hate the Lord, and they hate the Lord by the way they're living, and so we should be hating them as well. And so this guy comes uh, to Jesus with this question, who's my neighbor, who's my not? Who's not? Keep in mind as well that nobody did the Jewish people hate more than the Samaritans. This is, this is why. Back in 722 BC, the Israel, Jewish people, were in the south and they were in the north. The Assyrians came through and they took the guys in the north away. But they left some of them there. And then they transplanted lots of other non-Jewish people in the land from different religions. Well, the Jewish people who were there married with these non-Jewish people. The non-Jewish people brought their gods and their religion, and the Jewish people had their Yahweh worship, and so they mixed them together, and they formed this goofy cult-looking thing. They only believe in the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, the Samaritans would say that the Jewish people uh, go ahead and they, they add to the Scripture they add to God's word. The, the Samaritans do not recognize this idea about a temple. They don't recognize this idea about Jerusalem. They don't recognize King David. And so they're blowing all that off, thinking that's all cultish themselves. And so the Samaritans have built their own temple up on Mount Gerizim. Remember in John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman who says, you Jews say we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem, but we Samaritans say we're supposed to worship in Gerizim. What do you think about that? So this Samaritan woman... Addresses Jesus. Now it's interesting. Jesus accepts this is real important. So stay with me for just a second. Jesus accepts the Samaritan woman, but does not accept her theology. 
does not accept her doctrine. He loves her grace and mercy and respect and compassion. No one has shown her this kind of kindness, but he does not accept her doctrine. He says that you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We Jews do because salvation is of the Jews. So he does not accept. You accept the Samaritan, you don't accept their, their uh, theology. Real, real important. So you've got this, uh, this deal going on in this regard. So this guy knows that Jesus has been fraternizing with the Samaritans. And this guy knows, this lawyer guy knows, that the law, he thinks, says that you should hate the Samaritans. And all the rabbis agree that you should hate the Samaritans and we shouldn't love them, that they're not our neighbor. And so he's tricking Jesus because if Jesus says your neighbor is exactly what the law and the rabbis say, just Jewish people or proselytes, then all the riffraff are going to turn on Jesus and walk away. All these, all these sinners who are making noise about Jesus being a kind guy, they're going to leave him. And if he says, no, it's not what the law says, then all the Jewish people are going to turn on Jesus. This, this lawyer is a pretty sharp guy. He's thinking, I've got him. I've got him. Whatever Jesus says, he's going to get in trouble. I'm going to, I'm going to get out of this thing pretty good. So he asked him this question, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus gives this story. In verse 30, he says, in reply, Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to answer that question, who is my neighbor? But let me tell you a story first. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. And a couple things to be important. In this story, everybody, Jesus is going to name their nationality. He's going to make it really clear who they are. But this guy, no. Now, there's two ways you could tell who was who at this time. One was your accent. Because uh, the, the uh, priests spoke Hebrew. The uh, peasant uh, Jewish people spoke Aramaic. The folk along the coast uh, spoke Phoenician. The, the, the people up in Galilee area spoke Greek. The, the, the Romans that were among them spoke Latin. And so when these guys knew the trade language, when they spoke it, they spoke with an accent. And so you knew who someone was by their language. Now this guy, though, he's knocked out. You're not going to be able to tell who he is. You also could tell who someone was, though, by their clothing. You know, you dressed according to your nationality, to your vocation, to your uh, geographical area. But this guy's stripped naked. So he is face down in a ditch. He's not talking. You can't tell from what he's wearing who he is. Is this guy a Samaritan or is this guy a Jew? Or is he something else? Jesus says, he's not going to tell you. you know? Well, so he's, he's, in, he's in the ditch, though. And says, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by the other side. Now, it's a priest. The priest, keep in mind, is the same vocation as the guy asking these questions. Jesus is saying, somebody, oh, from your, your field, actually. It's going down. Now, you've got to keep in mind that because you ask yourself, why did the priest walk by him? Well, first of all, this Jericho road that led from Jerusalem to Jericho, a very dangerous place. This would be like akin to saying someone was walking through an alley at uh, 4th and Cherry kind of place around 1 in the morning, Sunday morning. You would say, this is okay. Someone's going to get mugged, I suppose this is an option for them. And so this priest is probably walking by, he sees this guy in the ditch, and maybe he's thinking this is a trick. This, this, this guy is in the ditch pretending he's hurt, he's really not hurt, I'm going to go over there and they're going to grab me. And maybe some of the other uh, people who did this to him, maybe this is legit, but they're waiting, and they're using him as bait, and when I come they're going to get me as well. And so he's, he's got to hurry on. 
Maybe, and he's a priest, he's a religious guy, right? So maybe he's thinking, you know, um, if I touch this guy. First of all, if I touch him and he's a Gentile, I'm in trouble. If I touch him, I get his blood on me, I'm in trouble. If I touch him and he dies in my arms, you know what? I'm in lots of trouble. Lots of, lots of ceremonial rules for a priest along these lines. And he's got to be thinking, you know what? If he dies in my arms, I've got this big old long honking ritualistic thing I've got to go through as far as cleansing. And I've got this very expensive sacrifice I've got to offer. And you know what? This is just too much of a hassle. And this guy, probably he's in the ditch. You know what? He's, there's a reason why he's in this ditch. He probably deserves it. And if I help him out, you know, he's going to end up in the ditch again. And just forget it. He doesn't, he, God has put him there and far be it for me to interfere with God's judgment. And so I'm out of here. So he goes. Now, I don't know if the priest really thought that. But I do know that whether the priest thought that or not, we think those kind of things sometimes. Don't we? Don't we? We, we think those kind of things sometimes. Too, too icky. Too confusing. Too, I, I, just, I don't know. Then, then it says that the Levite followed along, right? So, so too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. Now, the Levite, if the priest was like the pastor of the church, the Levite is the assistant pastor. The Levite hung out at the temple like the priest, but the priest did the sacrifices. The priest did most of the teaching. The Levites were kind of like the custodians of the temple. They were the bodyguards and bouncers of the temple. They were the musicians at the temple. They took care of the scrolls. They followed the priests around. The priest said, get me water. They got more. Whatever. They were the, they were the assistant type people there. But they knew this law, again, they quoted it every morning. Help me to love my neighbor today, Lord. So they quoted it every morning. Now, what's the, what's the, what's the Levite thinking, though? It doesn't say. But maybe he's thinking, you know, I see this guy in the ditch. I just don't have time for this. Because, you know, I've got, there's this big crusade happening in Jericho synagogue. And I am doing the opening song. And you know what? I, I, there's 200 people waiting there. And I just can't, like the two, for one, for the 200. I don't, I don't have time. Maybe one day we'll come back. Maybe we'll start a mission here on the Jericho Road mission. That sounds good. And so he's, and he's gone. He's, he's out of there. Now, I don't know if the Levite was actually thinking that. But I do know we think that sometimes, don't we? I'm just too busy. I just, it's just beyond me. I don't, I don't know. And so what I'll do is I will pray for that person maybe and just kind of let God deal with it and let God, because I just don't have I just don't have time. You know, Haddon Robinson says that there's an arithmetic that is taught in the schools of hell, an arithmetic that says uh, that, that shows lots of concern for the masses, but no concern for the individual. Now I just can't tell you the times, and you, maybe you could guess. But folk who stop by and they want to start this ministry, you know what the ministry they're going to start is going to be big. It's going to be huge. And there's this huge need and it's a big thing and lots of people coming. And so when they start this ministry and just a few show, they're all been out of shape. They want to just quit and just give up because we don't mind doing big things. But the little thing, this arithmetic puts a lot of, of emphasis on big numbers, very Little emphasis on small numbers. This, this arithmetic says it's valent and noble to cross oceans, but not so much to cross the street. It's, 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 it's an arithmetic from, from, from hell. So you've got the priest, and you've got the Levite who passed this guy, but a third guy passes this group, doesn't he? But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, 
And when he saw him, he had pity on him. Now the guy is naked, face down in the ditch. He's not talking. There's no way the Samaritan knows. Maybe this is the Jewish person, which I should just hate him. Maybe he's a Samaritan. Maybe somebody in between. But notice the difference between the Samaritan and these other guys. This is real significant. The difference is the fact that the Samaritan had pity. Didn't even respond to the guy out of guilt or I've got it, probably should do this. But out of, out of pity. You know that word pity is, is translated compassion elsewhere in the New Testament. It is the number one word in scripture in the New Testament to describe the state of Jesus' emotional well-being, Jesus' heart. So when you demonstrate compassion, you reflect Jesus. So this, this, this Samaritan, you saw him. He took pity on him. He went to him. He bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Wine would have been disinfected. He went to this. It could have been a trap, right? He, he went anyway. Then he put the man on his own donkey, which, if I'm not mistaken, means that he was on the donkey before, but now, you know what? He's walking. And this other guy has got his donkey. He's going to have to walk it. And then the next day he took, uh, he was to the inn, he stays with this man at the inn, takes care of him. What does that mean? I don't know. Maybe he stayed up all night with this guy tending to his wounds. The next day he took out two silver coins, that's two denarii, that's two days wages. And he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. You know, just, just think about that last line for a second. Knowing innkeepers, as you know them, would you assume that next time he comes through town, the innkeeper's going to say, oh, don't worry about it. Those two coins more than covered it. It's all fine. Most probably. That's not going to happen. Most probably the innkeeper's going to have a big old bill. Oh, just this, this, and he did this, and he did this, and overtime, and, and uh, just, here you go. And he was really setting himself up. But he knew this, that if the sick man, hurt man, would have gotten indebted to the innkeeper, the innkeeper could have sold him legally into slavery to pay off his bill. And so this Samaritan is, is keeping his freedom alive, is, is protecting him. This, this, this Samaritan gets involved, pays a pretty decent cost. And so Jesus responds to this guy, this lawyer. And he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Jesus is going to answer a question with a question. But look at his question. Because it differs from the man's question, the lawyer's question. This is because the lawyer's question was, Who is my neighbor? Jesus is going to change it just a little bit. But when he does, he changes the whole thing. He doesn't say, Who was my neighbor? He says, Who acted neighborly? In other words, he's saying, The, the question is not, you know, Who can I or should I not love? The question is, Does gospel love reside in your heart? The question is not, Who is my neighbor? But who. Am I a neighbor too? That's a major difference that Jesus puts on the table here. Now, this, this question of, of who is my neighbor, really, this is a, the text does answer that. And your neighbor, quite simply, is anyone whose need you see. It's that, it's that simple. And it's that difficult, isn't it? Anyone whose need you see. Your neighbor may be somebody who's unfriendly. Your neighbor may not be somebody who knows you. They may be somebody unknown. For all we knew, this Samaritan did not know who this guy was in the ditch. 
Your, your neighbor may be somebody who's unattractive. I'm guessing you got a, a naked, bleeding man in a dirty ditch. Probably getting involved there is going to at least look bad, you know, for crying out loud. Maybe your, your, your neighbor is somebody who is going to frustrate you, somebody who doesn't like you, somebody who's going to uh, call you out. Maybe your neighbor might be somebody whose uh, dress is offensive to you, whose hairstyle you don't like, somebody whose, whose lifestyle does not, you, does not meet your approval. Maybe your neighbor is someone who hates you. Jesus won't even go down that road. He's just, who is in need in your, in your path? Who is in need along your way? That was Jesus' response here. Now, in this text, it lets us know maybe some methodology. You know, if you want to reach someone's need, you've got to be willing to reach out and lend them a hand. And, and uh, it's going to cost you all those things. But there's something else that's in this chapter, that you, you can, this text, that you will miss if you're not real careful. The, what, if you think about this, all three of these guys, the Levite, the priest, the Samaritan, walking down the road, they all said, saw the same thing, this guy in the ditch. But they all didn't really see the same thing, did they? The, the priest saw potential for ceremonial uncleanness, ickiness, gross. The Levite saw not enough time, too big of a cost, way beyond me. The Samaritan saw his neighbor. And the reason why is because what I am determines what I see. That's the principle, huge principle in this text. What I am determines what I, I see. Uh, there's a nursery rhyme, remember this? Pussycat, pussycat, where have you been? Remember this? Maybe not. I've been to London to see the queen. Pussycat, pussycat, what saw you there? I saw a wee mouse under a chair, right? So think about this for a minute, this... I mean, London's a great place to, to tourist, I'm told. I've never been there, but they've got Westminster Abbey. They've got Buckingham Palace. They've got Big Ben. They've got, you can see the Queen, the Change in the Garden. I mean, there's lots of cool stuff in, in London. And going there to see the Queen is probably, that's probably what you want to do most when you get to London. You want to, you want to see the Queen. And that's what the, the, the Pussycat's goal was initially, right? But she gets back from her trip. And she's showing her slides and her pictures and people start coming around and saying, hey, pussycat, tell us about your trip. Say, hey, I'm going to tell you about my trip. And they're saying, hey, man, did you get into the palace? Oh, yeah, got there. Got there. Palace is pretty cool. I'm telling you, got there. Did you see the queen? I, I, I don't know. What, what do you mean you don't know? Was she there? Well, I, I could have been. Well, what did you see? Well, I saw a wee mouse. Under a chair. Is that what you, are you serious? You went to London to see a mouse? Are you saying, well, why did the pussycat see a mouse? Because she was a pussycat, right? You're, when you're a fuzzy feline perspective, then that's what you see. You see what you like, what you're attracted to. Um, the first command was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength. The second was love your neighbor, which is like it, but it's not necessarily it, but it's like it. It's second. It is second. You can't truly love your neighbor until you love the Lord. You just, you just can't do it. Otherwise, we see life through the eyes of who we are. What we are determines what we see. If our, if our heart is his, 
If he's got our future, our life, our perspective, our goals, then we're going to see through his, his eyes. You know, as a kid, you memorize 1 John 4. You memorize 1 John 4, 20. Whoever claims to love God and yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. You know, why you first look at the verses, you go, this verse... We would never say this because we're in church and all. But this verse is probably one of the most bogus verses in the Bible. I think it is because you know what? It is easy to love God, isn't it? God's always always nice to me. He's always kind. He's always sweet. He's always forgiving. I mess up. You know what? He doesn't hit me. But he, he goes ahead and forgives me some more. And if I really want to neglect him, I can. I can ignore him. And he doesn't. It's not in my face. I can come back to him later. I'm so sorry. It's okay. I'm more forgiving. God is an easy person to love. Yeah. But my brother... Oh, yeah, it's a whole different story. Not so easy to love. God is easy to love. See, as long as I want him to be my Santa Claus or my bouncer or my bodyguard or my genie, then he's easy to love. But when he wants to be my Lord, see, that's when we're going to lock horns a little bit. Now, the thinking that it's easy to love God, hate to, it's hard to love your, your brother. If you stare at the verse long enough and you stare at life long enough and you stare at the rest of the Bible long enough, you realize that maybe John is on to something here. You realize that, you know what, it's not maybe as easy to love God as I thought. That my heart is in rebellion to him. And I'm not going to be seeking God any more than a, a, a crook is going to be seeking a policeman. You know, you just won't do that. Then here in his love, not that I loved God, but that he loved me. According to 2 Corinthians, he speaks light into the darkness of my heart. The reason why I love is that he, by his Holy Spirit, has shed abroad the the, the light of Christ. The love of Christ through the gospel is shed abroad in my heart by the Holy Spirit. And so what what he's saying, what John is saying, what Jesus is saying, is if you've got this love that allows you to love God purely, not selfishly, then you know what? You will have a love that allows you to love other people. That will be the overflow. And that's why John says you really want to find out where someone's at spiritually. They can talk about how they love God, love God, love God. But if they love God and they hate their brother, whatever else they're doing here, they're probably not really loving God. If you truly know the light of who he is, if you truly understand the gospel, you're going to love your neighbor as, as well. That's what he's, he's, he's pushing on. He's leaning on a little bit. Jesus is letting us know in John 10. For followers of him. Two things. One is that 72 sent out. Is we need to share. We need to care about their soul. But likewise we need to care about their body. Their situation. Let me ask you this. Is there somebody. Well. In your life. Who's in the ditch? Now think on that for a second. You know the greatest, the ultimate uh, good Samaritan. And this is kind of a push on this text, but I think we can make it biblically. Is Jesus right? Jesus was walking down the Jericho road. He saw you and I in the ditch. We were victims of our own sin. We were spiritually dead, Scripture says. And Jesus took us and he embraced us and and he healed us. And he he, he paid for it himself. Jesus put us on the donkey, basically, in a sense. And so we got to ride while he walked in our place. And the path that he was walking in our place was going to take him to Golgotha as he was going to die for you and for me. He paid the price so that we can be free. And you know what? He tells the innkeeper, whatever else, whatever the cost. In other words, you're never going to lose it or get rid of it. It is none. It's secured. I've got it covered. 
Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan. And I, with, unless you know the ultimate good Samaritan, you can never be a good Samaritan. At least according to Scripture, the Scripture version of it, with the purity, with the depth that we would need to be. So back to the question I asked you a second ago. Is there somebody in your life? You're, you're walking down the path. Is there someone who's in the ditch that you know? Some of us love God very much, but you know what? We've become uh, inward focused. We've become too busy. We've been, we've been crazy, Russian, harried, uh, harassed life. And we just haven't stopped to look who's in the ditch. But who's in the ditch? I can guarantee you there's somebody. Probably multiple somebodies. Uh, students at school. They're not, not gonna, you're going to have to look. You're going to have to discern. Maybe somebody at work or at the club even in your own home, who's in the ditch, uh, despair over something in life as a, maybe a health issue, maybe it's an, a relational issue, but spiritual issue, they are just in the ditch. You ever think that maybe the reason why that they're across your path, you're coming across them in the path of life in your Jericho Road, that Jesus wants you, you, to reach out, you to minister to, you to help. Who? is in your path these days who's in the ditch and how are you going to help them let's, let's in your head right now lock that in because if you don't you know as well as I do you're going to go out these doors and we'll forget everything get the name this week how can you minister to them and maybe there's no name coming to mind let me just throw this out would you do this homework assignment for this week just this week we never have to do it again but would you be willing, just this week, regularly, Jews had their prayers, they prayed all the time, you know what, there's just one I'm going to pray all this week, Lord, would you show me somebody along my way who's in the ditch that I can help? And I promise you, Lord, through this prayer, that I will be looking. And then I'm going to do something. Now, I, I guarantee you, at some point, you pray that prayer, you're going to pray a second prayer during the week because he's going to show you somebody and you're going to go, Lord, who else is in the ditch that I might be able to help? Because I really not this person. But he will make that available. You don't think he will if he knows we really will respond? Oh, man. Yeah, he will. Yeah, he will.